young people can be dismissed. If you're first through fifth grade at this time, or uh, you can be dismissed uh, to your class in the back, uh, taught by uh, Brother Even. And uh, so kindergarten, first, uh, young, young kids up to fifth grade, you are uh, dismissed at this point. If you're visiting with us, you're more than uh, welcome to send them back, uh, or you can keep them with you. We just uh, do ask that if there's any disturbance through the service that you'd step out because we all... We want to give premium attention to the preaching of the Word of God, amen? And so uh, let's do that today. So grateful to have you here. We're going to close the doors in the back to try to kill the smell because it's hard to listen to preaching when you're smelling good food, amen? Uh, I know it's difficult. It's all right. Uh, we'll try to keep it a little, sh- try to keep it short enough today that you can, uh, you can uh, pay attention. If you want to speed it up, say amen, you know, that help. Uh, usually speeds up the service a little bit, uh, give a little bit of response, uh, but I won't keep you long. I've never been a long-winded preacher, as you know, if you've been around here. I, I, my, I was in a, uh, when I was in college, thank you, thank you for that. Tell you what, you always know the carnal ones, they always speak when they, uh, but uh, we had, uh, we, when I was in college, they taught us to, uh, I had a professor said, preacher age. If you're 19 years old, you don't have any business preaching for an hour. You don't know enough. Preach for 19 minutes. And, and uh, so preach your age. I thought that was great advice. And, and uh, of course, Brother Forsberg got the same training, and that's why I preach so short and he preaches so long. Um, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you would, today. Luke chapter 10. It, it was a story I read. It was a great cookout, had a lot of friends uh, together, had gathered, and they were having a cookout in the backyard and had a campfire there, and they had roasted some hot dogs and had some different things, and were just enjoying fellowship with one another. Uh, and, and they were, had finished eating now, and they passed, out long, uh, they passed out marshmallows with long roasting forks, and so they put the marshmallows on there, and they were just about to start roasting their uh, marshmallow or toasting their marshmallows on the fire when they heard a couple of fire engines speed by the house. And uh, so wondering what was happening, they saw that just a couple of doors down, the fire engine stopped and that there was a house fire just down the street from them that they hadn't seen. And so as all of them kind of rush out to the street and uh, down a block to where the uh, house is uh, really on fire, uh, they see the owners of the house standing out front. They're helplessly watching their home burn. And then the owners looked over at this group of about 12 people and just glared at them with disgust. And it was then that they realized that they had showed up to a house fire holding sticks of marshmallows like they're about to roast marshmallows over the fire of the house. This was not, did not fall in the category of being a good neighbor. The Bible talks much about being a good neighbor. It tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's perfectly natural that you love yourself. It's you, after all, amen? Who's more lovable than you? It's not hard for you to love yourself. But uh, loving others, that's a whole different animal. I read this poem, to live up above with the ones that we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live down below with the ones that we know, now that's a different story. Uh, we uh, We can kind of identify with that. Loving others is the outward manifestation of our Christianity, of Christ living in us. To love God totally, that is, with all of our heart, soul, and might, as the Bible tells us to, 
and to love one's neighbor as ourselves. That's the greatest two commandments of all. These two are inseparable because you cannot say, I love the Lord, but I hate my neighbor. They are inseparable because God is love, and that's why we are to love. We'll read today a passage, Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Important question. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he was departed, he took out two pence and gave to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come, I will repay thee. Which now of these thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. I want to preach for a few moments here on who is neighbor to you. Who is neighbor to you? Father, I pray that you'd help us. Bless the reading of your word. And these few minutes we have together that you would speak to us from it in a special way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How sad if we live our life for self. There's nothing as empty as the self-lived life. You know, except with one, one tiny exception, the world is made of others. Think about that. Except for one tiny exception, you, the world is made of others. We ought to live for others. The parable of the Good Samaritan is probably one of the most famous in the whole Bible. Children hear about this parable in the early days of Sunday school, countless messages and sermons have been written and given about the Good Samaritan. In fact, the fame of this uh, parable goes beyond preaching and teaching in church. The name Samaritan is used all throughout the world uh, for hospitals and charitable organizations and all kinds of things because of what the name Samaritan has come to mean because of this parable. But today I want to look at this parable in a different light. I don't want to look at it in the paradigm of our thinking I want to look, view it through the eyes of the lawyer. So you need to help me along with that as we go through this. And uh, let's try to set the table as the lawyer would have seen this parable. Because usually we see this parable, the Good Samaritan, as standing on its own legs. In other words, we start the parable in, uh, or start the reading in verse 30. We read the story and we kind of look at the story of the Good Samaritan as standing on its own legs as a parable contained in its own right. However, that's not the case in the Bible. In the Bible, it's not just a story that Jesus gave uh, in and of itself. It is an answer to a question that he was given. So that's how we're going to look at it this morning. Uh, As I break it down, I want to look at its mandate, its magnitude, its motivation, 
and its method. It all began with this interaction with a lawyer. Now, when we think of a lawyer, we think of an expert in civil matters or political matters or property matters or criminal matters. In those type of areas, we think of a lawyer. This lawyer here would have been an expert in biblical law. Uh, and he asks Jesus a question. The Bible calls it tempting him because he wants to set a trap for him. He wants to basically expose Jesus for what he thought Jesus was. Now, we hear that, and we kind of chuckle thinking, expose Jesus Christ for what? Well, you see, one of the problems that the Pharisees and the, the Bible law experts, one of the problems they had with Jesus is that he was constantly accepting sinners. They called him a friend to sinners. He, and, and sinners are lawbreakers. They're the worst because they're doing what the Bible says not to do, and yet Jesus would accept sinners. And in the lawyer's mind, this could not be. You could not be uh, or, or respect the law of God and at the same time accept sinners. That's what this lawyer thought in his mind. So he sets a trap. He asks a question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You say, how can that be a trap? Well, think about it. He expects Jesus, because of his attitude to sinners, he expects Jesus to say, oh, you know what, Mr. Lawyer, doesn't matter that much. You know, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. You just come to Jesus. God is love. He'll accept you the way you... It doesn't matter how you live or what you are or what you're going to do. Just come to Jesus. By the way, that's a message still preached today. Errantly so. Uh, sin does have to be dealt with. Amen. God does care about what we are and how we live. Uh, the, the, uh, the prosperity gospel today has done much harm to the Word of God because that's not what the Bible teaches, but that's kind of what he expected Jesus to say. Then he could expose Jesus for not being a true prophet of God. All right, let's go on. By, by the way, beware, friends, when we try to trap God. <laughs> the Bible says in Proverbs 26, 27, Whoso diggeth the pit falleth therein. And this lawyer is about to experience that. Jesus comes back to the man with a question of his own. It's always good to somebody challenging you in the Bible to come back with another question. So here's what Jesus asked him. What is written in the law? How readest thou? All right, now, there's 600 plus commandments in the Bible, and Jesus is not asking him to list all the commandments. He's asking him basically, why don't you just summarize the law as you see it? How readest thou? How do you see the law, he said. So he turns a question around, and the man answered, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Now, this was a common belief at the time. Uh, it, he did not come up with this himself. This was a summary of the law as brought out by, uh, according to the experts of that day. And by the way, it was true. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 22 said the exact same thing. On these two commandments hang the whole law. And so, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. We must not love God only with our heart, but with our whole heart. Uh, we, we do not love Him with a divided heart. We do not love Him with a detached heart. We do not love Him with a deceitful heart. We do not love Him with a distracted heart. We love Him with everything that we have. There should be no thing and no one in your life that you love more. Your heart should be consumed with one desire to please the Lord Jesus Christ. God is to be loved beyond all, uh, with all of your power and all of your faculties. Nothing in your life is to be preferred over God. We are willing to give up 
or should be willing to give up all that we hold dear at His command because of our love for Him. He is in our thoughts in the morning. He's in our thoughts during the day. He's in our thoughts as we go to bed at night. We ought to love the Lord God with all our heart. And that's only step one. (laughs) Then he says, and thy neighbor as thyself. We love our neighbor with the same intensity that we love ourselves. Uh, We are to meet the needs of our neighbor with the same force, with the same joy, and with the same passion that we try to meet our own needs. We are as happy for our neighbor's success as we are when good things happen to us. Uh, we uh, We value them as we value ourselves. We put our happiness within their happiness. So if they're happy, we're happy for them. Your efforts are as much to realize the success of your neighbors as they are to realize your own success. The Bible says in Philippians 2.3, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. You will put your comfort and your convenience on hold to see to your neighbor's need. How many of us are living like this? Let me illustrate. Imagine you're driving home late at night, and a fire truck screams by your car. You know, you know we have our first thought we have, whew, must be a fire somewhere. And it kind of concerns you a little bit because he's going to the direction you're going. And uh, as you approach your neighborhood, if you've ever seen that horrible glow of a house on fire, you see, you see that glow off in a distance in the direction that your house is at. You get that tingle down your spine. Oh, no. Sure enough, as you pull onto your street, you see with horror that it is indeed close to where you live. Now you panic. You hit the gas. The car lurches forward as you anticipate the worst. As you pull in the view of your home, you let out a huge sigh of relief. Whew! It's my house, not my neighbor's that's on fire. Is that the way we think? No, not at all. I'm talking about loving your neighbor as yourself to where you'd be relieved that it's your house. This isn't the way we live. Now, just stay with me as we keep setting this up. Their pain is your pain. Their joy is your joy. Their success is your success and should be celebrated by you. When we look at the tremendous obligation of these two things, loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbors yourself, we have to ask, is that it? Is that all? That's impossible. And that's exactly what this lawyer is starting to realize because Jesus answers him and says, Thou hast answered right, this do. This is brilliant on the part of Jesus. He says, you know what? You're right. So why don't you go and do that? If you want to be saved, you've seen what it entails. You go out and do that. That's all you have to do, those two things. Now, the man immediately understands what Jesus is doing, I believe, here, because we see that in the question that he asked. Because, and the Bible says he wanted to justify himself. And he asks the question, who is my neighbor? Because once you realize the magnitude of those two things, loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself, and once you realize what's involved in those two things, 
you, like this lawyer, will start to backpedal just a little bit, saying, wait a second, <laughs> let's be reasonable here, Jesus. You can't mean just anybody. Obviously, we can't live like this to everybody we meet, so let's whittle this thing down so it's doable. Let's get it down to the point to where I can, make, uh, where I can work with it. Who is my neighbor? Why? Because the premise of this man's life is that God listen now, will accept me if I'm good enough. That's the premise of his life. So when he realizes how big this is, loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbors yourself, he wants to kind of get it down to where it's something he could do because uh, God will accept me if I'm good enough. So now he sees Jesus here has called his bluff. Yes, that's the way you're supposed to live. But the unspoken question is, can you do it good enough to earn eternal life? Can you? Let me ask that question of you. Can you love God enough and love your neighbor enough to earn eternal life? Now, the lawyer, the lawyer recognized, too, that this was not possible. He knew he could not, and if we're honest, we know we cannot either. But he still clings to his premise that God will accept me if I'm good enough. So his question basically, don't miss it here, what is the minimum standard for me who is my neighbor? What's the least I have to do to earn my way to heaven? Now, look, that's the way we're going to think, humanly speaking. What do I have to do to get to heaven? Who is my neighbor? What is the basic minimum responsibility that God demands? Then Jesus responds with that parable. Now, you see the setup makes it different, doesn't it? This isn't just a story. It's an answer to a question. He tells him a parable. In this parable, uh, we find a hero. The hero meets the basic need of another uh, through his deeds, which were costly, which were sacrificial, and which were dangerous. He meets a whole range of needs. He meets emotional needs, physical needs, uh, financial needs, medical needs. And I'll remind you again, we have to look at this story as an answer to a question. The question is, what is the core of what God means to love my neighbor? In other words, what's the minimum standard Jesus puts into this story people with different cultures with different beliefs different ways of life different social status remember the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another they were bitter enemies long-time rivals thought of a, the Jews thought the Samaritans were nothing but dogs and that called them that routinely so Jesus here says I want you to look at people don't miss this here in the story I want you to look at somebody that you would normally despise. Somebody that you would normally hate. I want you to look at people who don't believe what you believe. Then I want you to sacrificially meet their need. I want it to astonish people. And it will, if we'd live like this. I want it to be so inexplicable that people will need to hear the gospel just to be able to explain you. That's what I want in a neighbor. He gives the essence of what it means to love our neighbor in this story. He, 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 he shows us, this is the and I think we lose this in our Christian life. This is God's expectation of us as his children. By the way, it's interesting, in Matthew chapter 25, the Bible talks about when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. And it talks about the fact that God... When he comes, we'll separate the sheep from the goats. 
necessary thing to do. Goats are, some goats are white, sheep are white, they can get intermixed, but you can't shear a goat, you're going to get a really thin coat, right? And so you have to separate the sheep and the goats. And so the Bible tells us that the judge of the universe looks down and decides whether you are a true believer or whether you are not. And it's interesting the parameters that he uses. Matthew 25, 42, For I was unhungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. I was naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. And on and on it goes. So God, Jesus says here, here's how I know if a person just says they believe or if they really believe and are a follower of me, a life filled with compassion for one's neighbors is a specific sign that we know Christ. What kind of neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor are you? In this we see the mandate. We're not given a choice. It's expected of us. Now we're going to see the magnitude. When we see the magnitude of what's expected, we also see our own incapacity to fill it, uh, fulfill it. We can't, we'll see what the lawyer saw, basically. And uh, we'll do what the lawyer did. Now stay with me here, because this lawyer did with the command exactly what we try to do with the command to be a neighbor. We tried to limit it. In three different ways, we try to limit the who, the when, and the how much. We try to limit the who. It's the most natural thing in the world to help and give to those who are just like you. Wouldn't you agree? Just a natural thing in the world. Uh, those who like you and those that you like. Who do you send Christmas cards to? Okay, nobody here but us, so we can be honest with each other, okay? You send Christmas cards to people who send Christmas cards to you. You have a list. Nah, I don't need to send them. I didn't get one from them last year. Hey, honey, do we need to send these people a Christmas card? Yeah, they send us one every year. Okay. It's kind of how we operate, isn't it? We give pe things to people that we like. It's natural to do that. You naturally identify with those who are like you and who are going through what you've went through. But Jesus said, wait a minute. Let me tell you who your neighbor is. He puts into this parable Two men who are diametric opposites, a Jew and a Samaritan, are cultural opposites. They are religious rivals. They are regional adversaries. They are bitter enemies. Jesus deliberately does this to try to show him, your neighbor is anybody. That's your neighbor. Anybody you meet. The Samaritan reaches across tremendous barriers just to help this man. Jesus makes it crystal clear, don't you dare to limit the who. The who is anybody you meet. And then the when. It's natural for us to help people in certain circumstances. For instance, if somebody uh, in this church suffered the loss of their home through a fire or flood or hurricane or whatever, uh, we would all jump in and help and get behind them and support them. Uh, if someone use, loses a loved one or someone gets terminally ill, hey, we're there for them. We'll support them however they can. But here's a family, they're constantly in trouble. They have habits in their lives that lead to their difficulties. We instinctively think, I know why they're in the trouble that they're in. They are foolish. They make financially irresponsible decisions. Uh, they make uh, ch bad choices, etc. And essentially what we're saying, I don't mind helping someone when it's not their fault. 
Now listen here, because Jesus answers this. Now it's important for us to understand the cultural period in which this Good Samaritan story was told. This was not an individualistic society like we have today. We are a society of the individual, but not in this time. In this time, it was not individualistic. It was uh, uh, if, if two groups of people felt oppressed by each other because they were not individualistic, when they would see a member of the opposite group suffer, they automatically would think, you deserve what you're getting. It's a different thinking than what we have today. Jesus gives us a person in this context that the Samaritan could look at the Jew that is laying on the side of the road and absolutely believe 100% he deserves what he's getting, I don't need to help step in and help him at all. Yet he reaches down and he helps him anyway. Jesus says don't limit the when. Don't limit the who. Don't limit the when. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus looked down from heaven and says, I'll only go and save those who deserve it. Would he have come at all? None of us deserve it. None of us deserve what he did for us. None of us deserve the fact that he died on the cross in our place. Don't limit the when. Don't limit the how much. I can't afford to help others. I can hardly help myself. You ever thought that or said that? Now, Jesus puts this man on a specific road, and uh, in Jesus' time, this 15-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Jericho, or Jericho to Jerusalem, this was a dangerous road. It was notorious for its difficulty, its robbers, and those things because of the isolated landscape. I actually saw some pictures of it this week as I was looking along the lines of the Jericho Road, and it's got rock outcroppings and cliffs and places to hide. It was easy targets for for bandits that had ample hiding spaces. So when Jesus says a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, listeners at that time would know exactly the dangers that he's talking about. So here you have a man who's been attacked. Then along comes a priest and a Levite. We know that story. They pass on. Why? Because they got good sense. If a guy's laying there bleeding and he's not dead yet the bandits could be very close by and so for their own safety they they hit the road when they saw him they passed right on by uh when a samaritan stops when the samaritan in the story stops he is risking everything to help this man he not only puts himself in danger but he puts himself at an inconvenience and then when he gets to the inn he basically gives the guy a credit card says here's the money for what he needs whatever you need i'll pay for it what a blessing Jesus is trying to say here, I want you to sacrifice. The how much expects sacrifice to help others in need. Jonathan Edwards addressed this, uh, this I can't afford to help people idea when he said this, if we be ever, never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening them se- ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? Good question. If you say, uh, I'll help somebody when it doesn't hurt. (laughs) How are you ever going to help anybody? When you say, I can't afford to help somebody, you really are saying, I can't afford to help somebody without burdening myself. And Jesus says, there you go, now you've got it. Because this is the point he's trying to make. The story teaches us that we're to help people that we normally would hate the sight of. We're to help people who have brought this on themselves. 
We're to help people to the extent that some of that burden falls on you. I think a great definition of the word compassion is to make your problem my problem. Isn't that what Jesus did? The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He did not have the problem, but he made our problem his problem. That's true compassion. That's what Jesus calls us to. That's our motivation. So the question then is, how in the wide world do we live like this? I mean, really. How is it possible for us to live this kind of Christian life? Can you see why Jesus probably, when the lawyer gives his answer, well, I see the law as you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You love your neighbor as yourself. Can you see why Jesus kind of with a, I would just picture him kind of having a half smile. Yeah, you got it. Do that. Oh, it's a little different when we think about what it contains, doesn't it? If you have to love God with everything you have, and if you have to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, it's undoable. You try to do that to earn heaven, to earn eternal life. You can't do it. Nobody can live like this on their own. Can you see then why the lawyer starts to backpedal? Because nobody lives like this. This type of neighbor living can come from two sources, and here's where we see the method. One is inadequate, and one is uh, all-sufficient. The first is through morality. Yes, you can live neighborly simply through morality. Let's look at it secular. Uh, You you can be concerned for the poor. You can give to charity uh, because uh, you're enlightened and progressive. You can volunteer. Or as a religious person, You have to help those in need because the Bible tells you to. I don't know a religion in the world that doesn't tell you that you ought to help the poor. But the motivation in religion is always guilt. And it's interesting that Jesus puts in this parable exactly that. He puts in two religious people. He puts in a priest and a Levite. (coughs) And they're the ones, by the way, that gave to the poor. They were the purveyors of the alms that was given to the poor. Yet when there was a sacrifice involved, when there was danger, when it cost them something, the Bible says they turned aside and went their way, ignoring the one in need. You see, what the point is here is that morality can only take you so far. It can help you a little. It can make you feel more guilty. But it can do nothing at all for your soul. What it really does is it inspires guilt. By the way, don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but just in your own mind, how many of you in the course of this message feel just a little guilty because you haven't been neighborly enough? If you're honest with yourself. I, I know I did when I wrote, uh, putting this sermon together. You feel like, man, that's what's expected and how I'm living? You feel a little guilty? Listen, don't. The point of Jesus' uh, whole, whole story here was not to make the lawyer feel guilty. Uh, And this is good. Don't miss this. The key to understanding that is where he put the lawyer on the road. Let's let's use a hypothetical. And I'm not a fan of doing hypothetical things with Scripture, but this might help us understand a little bit. Let's imagine that the Jew, when when he talks about the Jew on the side of the road, this was a picture of the lawyer because the lawyer was a Jew. So let's imagine that instead of putting him beaten on the side of the road, he put him on the horse. Uh, He's got him uh, going down the Jericho Road, and he comes across a bleeding Samaritan. At that point, this uh, lawyer would stop him. Ha! You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. 
I tell you what I'd do if I come across a bleeding Samaritan. I'd run him over with my, my, my horse or my vehicle, his Jeep, whatever he's driving. I'd run him over. I hate Samaritans. Your story makes no sense. But Jesus didn't do that. Don't miss this. This is important. He puts the Israelite on the road, bleeding, the Samaritan in the saddle. And he asked the question through the story, what if you were laying on the side of the road? What if you were bleeding? What if your only hope was mercy from someone who owed you nothing? What if your only hope was mercy from someone who actually owes you harm? Hey, Mr. Lawyer, would you want mercy then? If he had put the lawyer in the saddle and he'd have said, hey, don't be racist, don't be callous, uh, reach across the barrier, uh, even then he had only been, he would have only been giving a law, the lawyer here a do it or another rule or another box to check, but he's not giving him a precept. Jesus is doing what he always does, he's giving him a principle. What if you had to experience grace from someone who owed you nothing at all? Hello. Every one of us has experienced that, who's accepted Christ as their Savior. Only then, only if that had happened to you, would you get up and then you would look at everyone differently. Now you could look at people you normally don't even like and say, wait, I was saved by someone who owed me nothing. I was shown mercy by someone that I rejected. This helps us to get rid of our pride. Helps us to, no, no longer do we look down on any people. Uh, those people who are not like you, no longer do we look down on them because we have experienced grace. That takes away our pride. Now, here's another great point in this story. I love this little gem. Jesus reverses the question that the lawyer asked him. In verse 29, the lawyer asked, Who is my neighbor? Jesus, in verse 36, essentially asks, who was neighbor to you? Turns it all around. Now, the lawyer saw the point, couldn't even choke out the word Samaritan because of the bitterness they had against one another. Instead of saying the Samaritan, he just said, the one who showed mercy. Now, what has Jesus done in this story here? He's done what he always does. Instead of giving precepts, uh, rules, a whole bunch of do-its. You have to check all the boxes. That's religion. Religion will do that for you. You get all kinds of rules with religion. But Jesus gives principles when he teaches. See, the precept won't happen in your life until the principle is realized. Was the racism that the Jews had against the Samaritans a sin? Absolutely. Is there a rule against it? Yes. Is there a rule against cruelty? Yes. Is there a rule against selfishness? Yes. But rules do not change the heart. We need a life-changing experience that will set us on that path. How does it come about? Well, Jesus asks us to do what he has done. He found you. He found me. Beaten. Bloody. On the side of the road of life. Beaten up by sin bloodied by the world. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying worthy of all adaptation that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came onto your road. He showed you mercy. He picked you up. He had compassion. 
Not only did it risk his life, it cost him his life. And he did it anyway. In fact, he gave it. He said, no man taketh my life from me, but I give it. You see, if you in your Christian life see Jesus Christ as your good Samaritan that lifted you up out of the dregs of sin and put you on the path to life, then you can absolutely change your outlook. Because it's in response rather than a requirement. Now, which one would you rather live in? Response or requirement? Paul said, uh, I don't even remember the scripture verse he said it at, but he said, is the love of Christ constraineth me. I do what I do because I love him. I'm grateful for him. And here's the big difference between a religion and a relationship. Listen, I was saved out of a religion. Religion does not have the answer to your heart's need. It'll have a bunch of rules. It'll try to put a band-aid on the problem, but religion does not solve the sin problem because sin is not a behavioral problem. It is a condition that we're born with. You can do nothing with, about your sin. You cannot do enough good to save you from your sin. You cannot do enough good works to try to outweigh your bad works because as the Bible tells us, if we offend in one point, we're guilty of the whole law. We're guilty. We're sinners. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn through our sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's that gift? Well, that gift is when God comes to us and we're beaten, we're bloody, we're broken, we're on the side of the road. No one else cares for us. Religion could do nothing for us. Religion passes us right on by. Charity can do nothing for us. Charity passes right on by. But Jesus Christ reached down and picked us up. And as David says, uh, took, uh, picked me out of the miry clay and set my foot on a rock. Jesus did that for you. Showed you mercy. Jesus does not want your neighboring to be in response to a requirement. That's religion. We need to live our life as a response to what God has done for us. Now, I'm talking to two different kinds of people here today. There's only two classes of people in the entire world. The Bible talks about it. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life, but is condemned already. There are your two groups of people, and everyone in this auditorium under the sound of my voice today is in one of those two groups. You are either with the Son, you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're saved on your way to heaven, or you are without the Son, and that means that you are on your way to hell uh, without Jesus Christ. Now, uh, the, the wonderful news is that you don't have to leave without Christ, even if you came. But you say, oh, preacher, but I'm very religious. Religion will not do it for you, friend. Religion won't save you. Baptism won't save you. Good works won't save you. Going to church every Sunday, I love if you do that, but it won't save you. Because there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That's why Jesus Christ loved us enough to cross the barrier and to come down, down across for our sins. He died so that we could be saved. We could accept Him as our Savior. Have you made that decision in your life? It is the most important decision you'll ever make the decision of salvation. Let me ask it a different way. If you're in here today, let me just ask you, think about this in your mind right now as I'm asking the question, do you know 100% certain that if something happened to you today, you close your eyes in death, you'll open them up in heaven? 
The Bible says you can know, 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that you know that you know? Don't leave without knowing today. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Don't the pianos come forward. I want to ask a couple of questions, though, if I could. No one's looking around. Nobody's going to embarrass you. I'm not going to come point you out or, or do anything to embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. If you